Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling meticulous. Because I feel like today's guest is a really meticulous, caring... There was actually another word I was thinking about, or a phrase anyway, which is um, kind of TLC, like tender loving care. Mm. And I feel like today's guest is someone that really takes care of the Nurturing. Nurtures. Yes, nurturing is a good one. Thank I you. should have said nurturing. Should have done. Well, you've said it. you said it now. Today, Russell, I'm feeling nurturing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like today's guest is really takes care of the artists that she works with and yeah. collaborates with and promotes. But also the the artist that we're going to be speaking about today is a very meticulous artist and really makes intense, detailed, beautiful, inspiring ceramic sculptures that... I don't know, they just have this intensity of feeling in them. And I, I, I always think about them as being very sort of fine, precise, you know, focused detail. Mm. And our guest today has already been on the podcast about a year or so ago, and it went down so well, and we enjoyed it. It was literally one of the highlights of our show this far, that we thought today it would be really great um, on the occasion of a show that's opening in New York of this artist's work to just focus in meticulously mm. on one artist instead of all of her roster and just focus on this one artist. So we would like to welcome again to Talk Art, Jennifer, Jennifer Gilbert. Gilbert. Hi, Hi, everyone. Welcome back, Jen. <laughs> Hi, welcome Jen. back. Pleased well, to be back. Well, yeah, amazing. <laughs> well, first off, what, what was has the experience been like being a guest on Talk Art and uh, yeah why and what why what an, what an incredible experience I mean the feedback that I received after it went live and even still to this day has just been so heartwarming and so wonderful from artists from gallerists around the world um, from people just you know the fact that people have taken time out of their day to want to send me a message to say how much they enjoyed hearing about it and you know how wonderful it is that there's people in this country working with you know disabled or self-taught artists and then the fact that you know gallerists that I've never even spoken to before contacted me and were just like the work you're doing is amazing let's do something together let's have a conversation let's have a chat I mean it was just incredible what a wonderful opportunity to oh. share 
what I do. So thank well, you. Oh my God, you're so welcome. <laughs> we are so, we're so proud. You're, you're definitely one of the highlights that we've had. And like, it felt like a breakthrough episode for us and for uh, the genesis of Talk Art, but also for, you know, it felt exciting to kind of be a conduit for people to discover more about you and the artists that you work with. So, mm. And then the fact that you've had artists like Lucy Jones afterwards um, that's got cerebral palsy, it was just, it was such a, a highlight to listen to someone like that and to hear her story and to talk about, you know, to hear her talking about her art was, you know, a joy to listen to, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and actually, really. our um, our talk art book even sort of progressed in a different direction because there's a chapter in there which is dedicated to a lot of the artists that you work with, and I think we we name check you in there as well. But like that, that was something I think <laughs> definitely the index. Yeah. was added to the book, <laughs> you know, since we did your interview, which was yeah. really really great. And I feel like that's the other thing I love about you. And I'll quickly just be a fanboy for a second, but <laughs> I, I really love the idea that that you're such a great educator. Like, I just think you really do educate people in a really accessible way. And I think it's really important to highlight, you know, the work of um, what some people call outsider art, but really it's self-taught art. And I don't know, it's just a wonderful kind of world. And so today we are going to be speaking about one of your artists who's based in Japan called Shinichi Sawada. There's an exhibition at the moment about to open in New York with mm-hmm. Venus over Manhattan. And we'd like to say a big hi to Adam and my friend Anna Fernie as well. I love Anna. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Who you've been collaborating with there. Mm-hmm. And so this is in the Upper East Side space. Is that right? They're on, um, I think they're on 65th Street. I think they moved last year, didn't they? Yeah, so oh, okay. they're in a different space now, but it's cool. it's still a beautiful space, <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, amazing. Well, it's incredibly exciting because this is uh, an artist who's self-taught, as we said. He's 38, he's based in Japan, and he was diagnosed at 18 with autism, and he's, he's non-verbal. And for you, you've been championing his work and working alongside him and the studio that he works at for many years. And this is his first solo exhibition in the States. So for you, this is an incredibly exciting time. It opens February 20th, as we said, at Venice over Manhattan. So what does that feel like to be at this stage in this artist's career? I mean, it's it's incredible for um, an artist like Sawada to have this opportunity to have a solo show in New York of all places and at such um, a beautiful gallery space that's had some very well-respected artists shown there. And I think what's important to highlight is for most um, artists living in Japan and for lots of the studios there, they see it as a real career highlight. Their goal in life is to have a show in America. And wow. for them, that means they've made it. Yeah. So his studio staff are like absolutely ecstatic. <laughs> He's got this incredible opportunity ahead of him Isn't to have cool? this solo show. It's, yeah. I mean, it's so exciting. It's yeah. so, Well, let's talk about the studio then for people listening that don't understand yeah. the process. So they have these studios set up in Japan, which I don't, is this, is this unique to Japanese culture? that there is a support for that? Or, or are, you, are we seeing them all around the world, but we might be unaware of them? Yeah, they're definitely all over the world. There's plenty across the UK, plenty across America. You know, every country will have these studios in some form, some shape or form. But in Japan, they're slightly different setup often because the studio that he goes to has, um, they have the uh, lots of the Japanese um disabled artists have paid work that they do if they're able to do paid work and they do that within the studio space and then 
um, the other half of the day they'd spend on the creative activities. So within his studio space, there's a few different things that can happen. So he works in the bakery there, making bread in the mornings, the three days a week that he goes there. And in the afternoon, other people there often go out into the local community to sell the things they've been making. Or the other side, which Sawada started when he first went there, was like packaging things into boxes. So it's almost like um, a construction line. So a company pays the studio a certain amount of money and then the disabled artists um, then do this work and package things into these boxes for this company and then pass them across and the next lot comes in. So that's very different to the other models around the world and lots of other models don't have that kind of half work, half creative um, thing in that respect. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite different and it's quite unique in Japan. How did he get to that studio? I just, and I just want to clarify, when it comes to names, like we're, my name is Russell Tovey here and Russell's first, but in Japanese culture, you're reading backwards. So you, you are saying <laughs> Sawada. Is Sawada his first name? But we, we see it written down as... No, his, his, na- his name is... I mean, over there, when I, when I went to visit him, they called him Shinchi. Shinchi, yeah. Shinchi Sawada. But for everyone else, he's just known as Sawada. So, I mean, when I work with people in Japan, I often just call them by their last name. But how did he get to this studio then? So he's he's 38 yeah, now. When so did he start? Yeah, so he's 38 now. Yeah, so he's he's been in the Shiga prefecture um, pretty much all of his life, which is a certain area of Japan. And he's moved around a few different places based on his dad's work because his dad is a truck worker. Mm-hmm. But he's now based quite close to this particular studio. And ever since he was one, he had to go for some tests, um, as all Japanese people do. And the tests highlighted when he was one years old that he had some form of a mental disability, but they didn't understand what it was. Mm. So from that point onwards, he um, always went to special schools because although his family wanted him to go to just the regular high school that everyone else went to, they knew that it would have been more beneficial for him to be to be able to go to these special schools. So he went to one and then graduated and then went to the next one up and he attended these schools until he was 18 years old. And I thought what was really interesting when I was talking to um, some people that worked with him the other day is that he went um, one day to another special school when he was 15 years old and that was the first time he encountered clay. And when he went to this special school, he made a little frog out of clay. Mm. And I saw a photo of it the other day, actually, so I'll have to share it with you. And that must be the basis then of, you know, his his clay work when he went to the studio stemmed from this one encounter that he had making this little clay frog. Where's the frog frog now? Is that with his family? Because he lives with his family, doesn't he? He lives with his family. I don't know if that particular frog still exists, but I know he has made a few other frogs when he first started going to the institution. But the clay frog was based on a paper frog that he made at home. So ever since he was four years old, he used to like to make things at home and be quite creative, even though his family weren't very creative. So um, they've said to me that he used to like the cigarette packs of his dad's tobacco. So he used to take those empty tobacco packets and kind of utilise them for origami or little things he made with his hands. And then when he was six years old and started eating more sweets, he was using the wrappers from the sweets to reconstruct the um, cigarette packets, but out of sweet wrappers. So he's always used to doing things with his hands across his his whole life. 
life and making little different um, bits and pieces. So this paper model frog that he built was when he was 12 and he used to like looking at animal picture books and then looked at one, got some paper and made a little frog out of paper just based on what he saw in front of him and how he thought it should go together to just find really interesting. (laughs) And I only found that out the other day. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah, I can't wait to see this frog. But he's been described as having... Um, ladylike fingers, which I don't know yes. if that's politically correct to say. It's but possibly not politically possibly correct, not, but, but he uh, has got very long, slender... Very long, elegant, very elegant. Very elegant, elegant and yes. And they bend, they seem to... When I've watched videos of him, they seem to bend beyond the normal... <laughs> what, what other people's fingers bend They, said, they, have they of, said that. They said dexter, dexterous. I can't dexterous or dexterity. Dexterous, yeah. Yes. You know, there's certain people hands. who play um, pianos and... Uh, they, they they say when you have hands like that, you're an amazing. You can be an amazing pianist because you can stretch like the whole beyond the octave, and you can <laughs> you can have the if you've got hands like that, you, you can be an amazing classical pianist. Oh Just wow! Fact didn't know that. Why I could Is do it? that? But we, we we're seeing him. That's what we're seeing him when he creates. And what Rob introduced this episode as, as saying he felt meticulous is that you mm-hmm. see him meticulously crafting these very very intricate. Um, visionary kind of uh, creatures that are made up from his imagination that he brings Mm -hmm. out in the world, but they're very detailed and there's Mm -hmm. so many elements that go into them. Mm -hmm. How did you come to find his practice? How did it come into your orbit? Um, I first came across his work in uh, 2007, I think it was, and I went to the collection the Art Brew Collection in Lausanne, and they were planning to have um, an exhibition called Japan, which was outsider artists from Japan. And this is and an they... outsider institution space. Sorry, this is just yeah. Like this a... is yeah. This is so. This is where De Buffet, Jean De Buffet's collection is housed mm-hmm. in uh, Lausanne. It's a beautiful collection. It's a beautiful old building um, that's just been closed for quite a while because they're now making it more accessible, which is oh. a win-win situation. Yes, yes. But it, um, it has an incredible collection in there. And so they acquired 13 of his works in 2007. And then in 2008 did this Japan show. And I got to go behind the scenes just before they opened that show. So that's when I first came across his work. Um, and then started to talk more to his studio from about 2012 onwards. What was your um, first feeling when you saw it? Amazing. I mean, it's like something you've never seen before. They're so different and so unusual and they're so not of the norm. And I think that's what I loved about them. They're like, what the hell are these? How are they made? Like, you know, what's all this? What are these little spikes? Like, they're just, they're fascinating to look at. And when you had them alongside all the other works in the show, they just really stood out because they were just, they're quite empowering when you look at them. Like, even just one, let alone a whole body of them together. Yeah, they do have a kind of charge, don't they? Like a kind yeah. of, like an inner spirit or something that seems to emanate like power from it, but in a very like loving, peaceful kind of way. Oh, and yeah. They also make me think of like ancient history. Like they almost feel like they could have just been like unearthed and they're mm-hmm. kind of like yeah, they're treasures of like a, yeah. another yeah. civilization or, yes. yeah, yeah, totally, which I adore as well. Very fierce, but delicate. Is the yes, way exactly. Yeah, because there's a strength to them, but they don't seem like, violent or scary yeah. they're more like mm-hmm. welcoming and but but just know who they are there's yeah. this real yeah. sense of self in them but also i heard that when he was 18 and he went to join this institution where he would start to be creative half the day and then half the day work um he the the, the actual like uh, teachers didn't actually have a space yet for ceramics is that right mm-hmm. so they kind of built this shed 
So there's a yeah, there's this like yeah. So there's this little cabin which is called um, a cam a camarba, which means a ceramic place basically. So there's this little like shack almost uh, made out of sheet metal that's quite close to the studio, but up into the mountains a bit in a in a vast foresty kind of area, mm. and you have to go there by car, and you know it's all off the beaten track. And there's no real door, there's no windows, there's just big open gaps at the side of these sheet metal um, things. So it's it gets very cold. So he can no he can't go there when it's winter time because it's just not good to work in those conditions, yeah. especially with clay. Yeah. So he stops going there on the 20th of December and then doesn't go back until the end of February when it's slightly warmer. And yeah, it's, it is literally a shack and he is taken there and sometimes there's one or maybe two other artists there with him. But as he's mostly non-verbal, he doesn't really communicate with the others and he just goes there, sets himself up, gets his clay out and then kind of gets on with himself for three or four hours and then and then leaves again. And what I find really wonderful is that when he goes into the studio and like he gets out the piece that he's working on, he then gets out his little pot of clay and then he gets kind of older pieces that have been drying out and puts them on the side next to him, sometimes one, sometimes three or four. And I almost feel like he's creating a little crowd or like a little row of friends next to him. Like an audience or, you know, here's me and here's my friends kind of. You know, who knows what his mind is thinking, but I like to think he's got his friends there watching him kind of create these sculptures. And I love that thought that he carefully places them one by one and then works on his piece and then puts them all back almost to sleep or to bed at night kind of when he leaves. Do you think he forms uh, a really close attachment to his works in in the fact that, you know, now that they're being sold, that mm. that he misses them or do you think that they're part of just the process of creativity that he's uh, like mm-hmm. doing channeling I, th- I think it's definitely more about the process for him because the man Ikitar- Mr Ikatani that works with him said that once he's finished with one and it's gone on the shelf he's very much onto the next one and very much doesn't look back or you know doesn't seem to hold any emotion towards the ones that he's created he's straight onto the next one so I think the process for him and the like you said the meticulous process the precision and every everything about it is what's important to him yeah before they discovered him creating clay they didn't really have this uh location or or this setup for him but since they since he started to really blossom they kind of created this yeah and and, yeah and there's like two hand-built kilns there as well so he uses shigaraki clay which is the area that they're based in and it's kind of almost similar to shigaraki techniques that they kind of utilize um with his work so it's it's almost like they call shigaraki um where means like cave kilns because it's these little kilns that you can kind of fully walk inside and kind of place things inside um and then they're they're called that because there's a certain way that you have to utilize the kilns so for his work they only fire this kiln up twice a year because there's so much wood that has to go into it that they then have to chop source find and store all within this um, little hut as well and then Mr Ikitani stays awake for three days and three nights which seems 
bizarre to me, uh, feeding wood into the hut, into the kiln, sorry. On his own there with this. I've seen photos. There's definitely other people keeping him company, but he, he likes to be the one doing it because he's done it for so many years now. You know, this is going back 20 years. Wow. And he feeds the wood in and keeps it at 1,200 degrees Celsius for three days and three nights. And then it's left for a week to cool down. And there's this magical, there's some photos with this like magical glow coming out the back of the kiln. Mm. Um, so why only it. twice a year? Because there's so much. It's so expensive. The fire, the oh. amount of firewood needed to keep it at that temperature for three days and three nights is, is so expensive for this particular studio that they can only afford to do it twice a year. So even though Sawada is quite a prolific artist and then the work dries out for six months, he can only fire so many every year. So And some of those might get damaged in the kiln. Yeah. Um, so there's never a massive amount that gets produced by the end of that year. Right, right. It's really interesting, that idea of like tradition and uh, kind of care that 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 leader of the centre takes, Mm -hmm. you know, even in firing up these kilns. Mm -hmm. It's such a wonderful, it seems like quite a caring, you know, everyone's putting in a lot of effort, aren't they, Mm -hmm. to make this possible? Yeah. And I I love the idea of making the shed as well. It's so genius. But what do you think he does on the months off, you know, from the time in the winter when he's not able to, (laughs) to, does he still create other things? So he does. So he... um... He still goes into the institution, uh, the the main building, and still does his bakery stuff the mornings he would normally do. And then when he first went to the studio, he did actually do um, stitched work, which is called sashiko, which is almost like very neat, tidy lines, horizontal and vertical lines. But the studio said there's only three of those works now remaining that he that he made because he gave that up and started on the ceramics. But if he's not at the studio, until 2014, he was at home making these little paper vehicles, which some will be on show in New York. Um, and again, it's the first time they're going to be on show in New York. And he tears, he very carefully tears tiny little, little bits of paper and makes these small 3D models of buses, trucks and cars and makes all the insides of so those little seats in them. There's wing mirrors on tiny bits of wire that you can move out and push sideways. There's the steering wheel. The doors actually open and close. And on one of them that I saw the other day, there's a sliding door of this food oh. truck on the back of it and I was like oh my god it actually slides (laughs) so when did he start making these sorry so he started making those in 2001 and stopped only in 2014 and only made them at home and the only reason he stopped which I love is that his family bought a computer and now he plays Mario instead oh that's kind of sad I love that I mean I like the fact that he's Super Mario but I mean (laughs) That's kind of sad that that creativity has been channeled into. I know, I know. I just it 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 makes me laugh because I think, well, you had all this creativity you were doing at home, and then suddenly a computer came, and then technology's taken over, and yeah. and that side of things. Which uh, quite surprising stopped. he's still doing the clay. Then, if if the kind of computer took him away from yeah. these paper sculptures, that he still goes back to the clay. That feels like it's compulsive. I think it's, for him. Yeah, I think it's he's so passionate about it, and the, and the studio have said like you know. Although he has to do the bakery stuff, he's really not very passionate and he has no sort of want to kind of develop that side of it. He he knows how to make particular things mm. and will make those. And then as soon as he can get out to the hut, he goes with Mr. Ikatani out to the hut and then works for four hours straight. And they said that during that time, you know, he barely eats, he barely drinks. He's purely focused on the clay work in front of him. 
and if he ever wants anything or needs any support or anything because he's non-verbal they've kind of developed this kind of just he has little symbols that he might do so he might wave or he might do another sort of gesture and then Mr Ikatani because he's worked with him for so long will know what that gesture means and will then get him whatever he needs to move forward. Oh my but, god, I love Mr. Ikatani. I want he, Mr. Ikatani in my life. Well, and, and what's lovely about him, I mean, he's so old now, and he was actually retired before um, Sawada started doing ceramics, and so he's now continued all these years. <laughs> he's this little old man, oh. and is meant to be retired, and uh, and just goes and supports him. And he, you know, he's never. He said that he's never taught him anything. He literally puts the clay down in front of him and leaves him to it. And said if he's ever tried to show him anything, he basically gets shut down by Sawada and like wow. basically pushed away. And oh my basically god, they said, should make a documentary about the teacher. I love. Yeah. Him. <laughs> I think he features in a so couple cool. I've seen. So let's talk about these actual creations of Sawada's. <laughs> so I like the fact that he makes bread in the morning because to me, there's something very bready about the quality the texture of the sculptures they feel very kind of doughy and they've yeah. got that element to them but they're, they're and, these... and they needed as well yeah like the kind of yeah yeah intensity yeah of, um, but, action yeah, yeah but he's created through through clay this kind of personal mythology so you can look at them all when they'll be like the wings of a bird the face of a dragon a lizard the profile of an owl they're all kind of like creatures and demons of his imagination mm-hmm. that he then mm-hmm. creates these these mm-hmm. kind of beings into the world that, that are imaginary but he brings them to life in ceramic mm-hmm. art mm-hmm. but there's something so satisfying about them but let's let's talk about what they kind of look like and how they mm-hmm. vary mm-hmm. yeah i mean and also the color of them is quite bready because they have yeah. this kind of oatmeal color yes and they they never got any glaze put on them when they go into the into the kiln because it's such a high temperature the kind of the lustre that you get across the surface and like the reddish tones and the greyish tones is all kind of the crystallization of the ash in the kiln and that's what gives it its color so depending on where it is in the kiln depends whether it goes slightly grayer or slightly redder all based on the um yeah the ash that's kind of traveling around from the firewood mm-hmm. But what I thought was really interesting, I saw a photo the other day of this particular piece and I've never seen one like it before. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I'm sure you'll be able to share it. And when I was asking them about it, in Japan, there's this, um, an animal symbol that's like a good luck charm, which is called Shigaraki Tanuki, which is like a raccoon dog type thing and people put it in their houses and it's in shop windows and it has eight different reasons why it's meant to be like a symbol of good luck and they said that he obviously sees it when he walks to and from the center in different places and so it's his interpretation from seeing this weird um, creature thing when you see a picture of it on the internet you'll think it's quite strange but his interpretation is it's so incredible and when when I found out what it was I was like oh my god that makes complete sense I mean it's a really weird strange animal creature thing with this like bowl under his arm and I was like wow I've never seen anything like that that he's done and when they explained that to me and I was like that is his interpretation and his memory of seeing this thing when he's walked to and from the um, center which I loved but otherwise yeah that I mean we never really know what they are because he never really talks about it obviously yeah. but they are like dragons lizards they also said he makes um, Oni which is like almost like a de- demonic creature face like a bit like a devil yeah. with horns so some of his war-based work has horns and like devilish long teeth 
And this is like a, a folklore thing from Japan that he must have obviously seen growing up in books and things. Yeah. And that's kind of starting to come through in some of his works as well. But I think that's what I love about them, that we don't, they're, they're just, they don't, they look a bit like something, but they could be something else. Yeah, it has an element of a lizard, but then it has this weird tail or it looks a bit like this, but then it has a long snout. But then they it can... has these spikes. So the older works, yeah. and I know that they've changed and we could talk about mm -hmm. touch on that, but they're, they're really recognisable for these little spikes, mm -hmm. intricate spikes that cover the bodies of these mm -hmm. creatures. Mm -hmm. And I think you just spoke to us earlier on, like you, you, there's some recent kind of unearthing of where he's got mm -hmm. his inspiration from and like you've mm -hmm. said this good luck charm but then you found something recently about mm -hmm. why you mm -hmm. think these spikes have entered into his practice as well mm -hmm. so when he first started going to the center they said it was around about 2002 he went on a field trip to this temple which is called temple Tadeji. It's about 40 minutes away from where he is. And within this temple is one of the largest bronze Buddhas um, statues within the world. And so he went there on this field trip. There was about three of them that all went there. And if you look at a photo of it on the hair of the Buddha, it's like these small rounded, like rounded spikes all over the head of this Buddha. And so Mr. Ikitani thinks that after he came back from there, from this field trip, that's when these spikes started to appear on his work. Okay. But they're, slight, they're obviously more pointy than the ones on the Buddha. But they think, and obviously we'll never know, mm. but it started after that field trip and that's potentially where his kind of thinking was. And that's why these kind of spikes then started to appear all over his works, just like it, it covers the entire um, head of this Buddha. A friend of mine was talking to me last night about, I, I sent the works over to him and he mentioned to me immediately he was taken by them because he's really into folklore. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about folklore because folklore is often a way of kind of telling, you know, stories of a community or of a nation and, and kind of like, you know, tales and, and mm -hmm. fables and kind of, you know, narratives. Mm -hmm. And what I find so interesting about this kind of work is that he's telling us narratives very directly through the actual object and through the visuals. And this idea of visual kind of artwork and sculpture being a universal language in itself. Mm -hmm. So even though he's, he's a non-verbal uh, person, it's like he's able to communicate and experience, you know, feelings and emotions through the actual art, art itself. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like as a Definitely. visual communication language. Definitely. And do you think that's partly why he's gone on to be so popular, like across the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, potentially, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, he, he doesn't speak. So his his artwork is, is what is what's speaking for him. And they're so fascinating to look at and sort of, you know, being profiled through the Venice Biennale in 2013 mm. um, in Gioni's Encyclopedic Palace. That's what really um, pushed him into several people's sphere within the contemporary art world, because mm -hmm. people, you know, they've never come across anything like this. It was you know, profiled in this really beautiful way behind these cabinets in kind of a, a semicircle within within the palace. And I wrote down what Gioni said. He said that he liked them because they were like um, Borges' Book of Imaginary Beings and they were like um, medieval creatures or pre-Columbian sculptures. Yeah, and that's why he was drawn to, to them. And I think, yeah, that they're so different to what people will, you know, come across um, within contemporary art galleries, but, you know, within anywhere, really. And 
I think this is what draws people in, you know, they've come across something, they've not seen it before. And because you can't really find out very much about the artist or why they make them or where their inspiration is from, is what makes people even more interested in them because they are this mythical kind of strange imaginary being that you just want to know more and you, you'll never find it all out oh. because he's non-verbal. Not to, I, it's about the human I, I condition, really, isn't it? It's about yeah. really un, trying to understand the human condition. I think that's why so many self-taught uh, outsider, outlier, art, brute artists are so fascinating is because they are making art outside of an art market, outside of mm-hmm. art history, mm-hmm. outside of the mainstream mm-hmm. conversation. They're just being compelled to make mm-hmm. art. And when they yeah. create these visions, mm-hmm. they are they challenge us because for us it's like, how have you realised this without really mm-hmm. referencing anything else? It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a fascination. I, I also feel like that this work in particular really speaks to all of our subconscious. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, you know, um, it's, it's a part of ourselves we often don't want to acknowledge or even confront, you know, almost like dreaming, but like it's, it's a part of you you're not totally consciously aware of. And I, and I really, every time I look at his work, it brings back kind of things that I feel that I'm not aware I feel. Does that make sense? Like mm. it's super kind of underneath. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. I, I feel like it brings up feelings I wasn't aware I even had. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fascinating. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Do you know what's really exciting about this, Jen, is that I know a massive drive for you has always been working with um, artists who are developing, who are uh, self-taught, um, disabled, um, but you want to bring them into the mainstream conversation mm-hmm. with contemporary art. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. exciting is that talking about the Venice show in 2013 and now going forward, it feels like this is really happening mm-hmm. for you. And that's a huge mm-hmm. uh, achievement and, mm-hmm. you know, celebration for you. Mm-hmm. And that's something you want to continue doing, right? Oh, yeah, massively. I mean, there'll always be people that will just want the two fields kept very separate. Mm. Um, outside art and contemporary art and they'll always you know this is this this is this and there should never be any crossover whereas you know the the gallery venus over manhattan did a joseph yoakum show uh 2019 and he's classed as a self-taught visionary artist and you know within a contemporary gallery space and that got so much publicity and press and again changed the way that this artist was seen and now he's going on to have a solo show at moma um, which is really? just incredible for an artist like that. It's just, um, it's just amazing. So to have these artists like Sawada now having this show within this contemporary space, <clears throat> and also he's just had um, 
a show in two museums in Germany, which are contemporary sculpture museums, it completely just changes the way that people see this art. And it's not just seen as a disabled person's art anymore. Mm. It's looked at with an, in a different way. And I think critics look at it in a different way. And for me, that's really important because I really dislike the way that people might stereotype the work of people with disabilities and disabled people and just be like, you know, in my head, it only looks this way and I can't ever you know, look at it in another way. And then by a contemporary gallery or museum profiling it, it starts to shift people's attitudes and shift the way they're thinking. And for me, that's really important because, you know, self-taught artists create the most incredible work that is so underseen. Um, you know, it's, it's barely seen within these kind of contemporary art circles and it really needs to have more profile and more people talking about it and more light shone on it rather than us seeing the same thing, the same names coming out over and over again at these big institutions. Like, why can't they switch it up and throw something else into the mix and be like, let's try this for a change. And if it bombs, it bombs, you know. The fact is that they've taken a chance on, you know, something other than the norm and then they're trying to test the waters to see what it's like for their audiences. And I bet their audience will love it. Yeah. How, how did Venus <laughs> yeah. Over Manhattan uh, discover his work and how did you guys connect? Um, I met Adam, uh, this is Adam Lindemann, isn't Adam it? Lindemann runs, yeah, yeah, who runs it. I mean, he set it up in 2012. I probably met him three years ago in New York, very briefly, at the Outsider Art Fair. And then he got in touch with me last year. Um, and I, I talked to him quite a bit at the fair, and then he got back in touch to say, you know, I've been thinking about this artist for a long time now, and I obviously saw it in Venice. And he, for him and his gallery, he said that what he's really passionate is showing artists that he thinks have been somewhat overlooked and deserve more recognition. Mm. And I really like that idea that, you know, for me, Sawada, although he was profiled then, you know, since then he's been in several museum shows, but they're often outsider-based shows. So it's not been back into the contemporary arts market in that respect for a while. So to have it back profiled like it was in Freeze um, in 2019, the attention that it got then when I was over there talking to people, people were fascinated by the works, you know, this contemporary art audience seeing this thing. And when I walked around Freeze, I was like, there's nothing like this here, actually. Yeah. Like, this work really stands out for me because, you know, although, I mean, I'm biased because I love it. But when I walked around and I was like, there is nothing like Sawada's work, you know, it, it stands on its own, it's unique. And, you know, everyone should have one in their house. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot, I mean, a lot of people do. There are so many collectors, myself included. I'm a, I'm a mm -hmm. super fan of Swada. Mm -hmm. and, but we have other really high-profile collectors, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. Coors, uh, mm -hmm. who has a great collection. It's where I first saw the work. When me and Rob went to visit Coors for our talk art episode, he had two Swadas that were on his table, his kind of iconic table that sits in front of his couch yeah. that all of his guests sit on when he posts yeah. and we sat there and they were there and that's how we got in contact because we mm -hmm. tagged you and then that's mm -hmm. well you said they're actually Sawada anyway but Cause is a big collector and a big champion mm -hmm. he's a massive champion of outsider artists mm -hmm. but there are there, he's really gaining this massive mm -hmm. collector base and you know this show is going to open him up to so many people mm -hmm. which is really important and there was there was an article that Holland Cotter from the New York Times wrote in 2019 actually about um new MoMA opening and obviously opening on the old site of the American Folk Art Museum. Mm. And he was, you know, he wrote this article saying, you know, when you reopen, let's not have any more Rauschenbergs, let's not have any more Richters. 
are you going to let more self-taught artists in? And then he did a list of like which artists should be in MoMA and Sawada was one of them. And I was like, wow. yes, he should be there. <laughs> and he's still, he's still not, but <laughs> yes, he well, should be Well, maybe after this show, there should yeah, be an acquisition after this. I mean, yeah. how many works are going to be in this show? There's about 30 works in the show. Ceramics. Ceramics, um, ranging from his earlier works right up. There's one work from 2020 that just got fired before it went out there. Um, so it's it kind of go it gives a nice cross section of the style with the spikes and then the slightly more varied style as he, as time's gone on. So Moma needs to be uh, acquiring one. I think they all do. Oh, so so you, we were saying earlier on about the spikes, and you were saying that they've kind of lessened now. Is it, mm-hmm. there's a story about why that is, why that transition in his practice mm-hmm. has kind of changed recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in in 2017, another artist, a different artist to the ones he normally works with, called Akio Contini. Um, started coming to the studio and started to come to the ceramics hut where he works. And Contini's work has a real focus around uh, the face and the mouth and kind of building out from there. But they're very much simplified forms, um, not covered in spikes or anything, um, sometimes more animally with octopus tentacles and that sort of thing. And then ever since he started going to the studio, there's been a real shift in Sawada's work and kind of the spikes have started to disappear now. And they're more focused on the faces and more focused on the mouths with bigger teeth, Mm. much like Contini's are. They're still very recognisable as Sawada's work, but they haven't got these spikes over them anymore. And sometimes I had one a few couple of years ago that had like octopus tentacles at the side. And then I had it like next to Contini's octopus that he'd made. And I was like, wow, you can really see how one's influenced the other one in kind of the marks that they make. And some Contini's were quite... Um, simple and not much texture on them and then as he's been um, staying at the studio his have now got a bit more texture on them marks made they're borrowing from each other yeah it's like yeah so even though they don't communicate verbally their art is like having a communication with each other and kind of they're it's almost like they're bouncing ideas without having to verbally bounce them they're artistically bouncing ideas Something that's quite unique to Sawada's faces is that he often has more than one face on mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. on a work, mm-hmm. or he could have like faces upon faces, yeah, like and totems. they kind of like grow, <laughs> you know? Do, yeah, exactly, yeah. Which is so genius. Can you? Yeah. Do, where do you think this is? Is the face like? Is is it representing like himself? Maybe is it? Like, what, 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 but, what is this obsession? I guess that's a thing that we never know. And, and we'll never know uh, either why he does it. But they did say that he likes to have, he likes, um, I think he used to see pictures of like the Taj Mahal and stuff. And they said he obviously seemed to be interested in the symmetry in buildings and things like that, which is why he likes to have symmetry in his work. Again, this is all speculation. But yeah. in their eyes, they say, you know, they like he, he likes to have one thing and then the, the face and everything is the same on the opposite side. So quite often they're two-sided and they're almost symmetrical on the on the both sides of the piece. Um, so although the spikes might be going slightly different ways and the eyes might be slightly bigger or something, they're, they're very symmetrical. And sometimes there's four-sided ones um, with yeah, like a face on every it. side or sometimes yeah. there's a face on either side and then big spikes all the way up the side but they always have like a symmetrical look to them mm. um, and, and they think it's because of things he's looked at over the years and, and seem to have liked the symmetry and I think that featured in his textile work as well having kind of symmetrical patterns. 
I also really discovered something recently about his work, and that's what's so cool about it, is I feel like every few months, the more you look at his work, you find different themes. And Russell actually has one which is a kind of crawling creature, a, a bit more like an animal or something. Like, it's, it, it's not so totemic. It's more like it's literally walking across the floor. And I, I, that, <laughs> but, but that kind of animation and motion really surprised me. I was like, mm-hmm. I thought they were more still and contained mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. And Russ was really into it. And initially, I was really taken aback. And now I'm getting really into it. Can you speak mm-hmm. a bit about, like, those walking ones? Because they're amazing, aren't they? <laughs> There are there are a few. I haven't had that many actually. That I mean, I've had a few lizardy ones, but the one that Russell's got has got these like weird longish kind of legs, almost a bit yeah. spider-like, maybe yes. kind of curve up and arch down with talons um, on the end. Yes, um, and they're fascinating. It's like claw, like you said earlier. It's a mix of different things. It's like the claws of a hawk mm. with these weird spider legs, with mm. this kind of weird round body. But then it's got this reptile-like thing down the middle with these long spikes, a bit like a dragon. It's like so many different things formed into one. Mm. Um, it just—that's what I love about his work. Every time I unpack one, when I open them, I get really excited because I'm like, "What's it going to be this time? What's it going <laughs> to have on it? What's this?" And like his newest work, the the 2020 piece, is literally the one side is um, like two small eyes at the top and then this massive wide open mouth that covers the entire rest of the front of it with big teeth at the front, at the top and the bottom. And then all around the back is this like wavy hair. And it's so different to any of the others. Wow, and I was just like... I'd love to see that. Is that yeah, going uh, to the that's, show? That's gone into the show in New wow. York. And I was like... This almost looks a bit like a person with this wavy yeah. hair at the back, but then this terrifying open <laughs> mouth with these like big fangs at the top and the it's bottom. Like Rob. And I was like, <laughs> it's me with my lockdown wavy locks. <laughs> is he a, is he aware of his success? No, not at all. No. What, so what is it? What do you think? I mean, we can never know what he's thinking, but no. the process of making these works, firing them, and then he never sees them again because the studio mm-hmm. you know, and you have the have like this mm-hmm. or, this organised, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, gallerist situation. Yeah. What what does he think's happening to them? Do you think? I mean, his studio said that you know he he doesn't really ever show much emo- emotion, and I think this is partly because of his um, autistic diagnosis, and so for him. It, it, it's just it is just the process like he really enjoys making them and then it seems like if he never sees them again that's probably fine mm. but within the institution within the main building because they're so proud of him and obviously he's you know he's the artist that's got the most attention from the studio as soon as you walk through the doors there's an entire wall of his artwork like his re- his tiny original um he made these like really tiny little lizards to begin with that have got like you know just three spikes along the back and a little oh, face love. and like his little frogs and that sort of thing mm. right up to like really big ones and they have this cabinet with loads of different size holes in it and in each hole is like a different sawada oh, um have you got a picture of that i've got a photo of that oh, I, no. I saw that when i went that. there so like he he see every time he goes there he will see his artwork because it is all there right. for everyone to see as, as as soon as you walk through the doors and then so yeah it's not like he's never surrounded by it. and obviously yeah. he's every day when he's in the ceramics hut it's all there drying out around him and there's just mm. shelves and shelves right. for six months it has to dry out on these shelves so he's constantly surrounded by his works yeah. it's not like he never sees any of it um and like i said he puts it next to him every day so it's like his little chums with him 
So in good. the studio. And what, what about his family? Are they super proud of his success? Because they mm-hmm. must be aware of it all. Yeah. So I think originally, I mean, they obviously thought he was very creative because he used to make all these little things out of paper and stuff mm. at home. And so they obviously noticed he had this kind of creative streak. Mm. And that's why when he graduated high school, they were really keen for him to go to an institution that did artwork there. And I think to begin with, until he started to get recognised, which wasn't until maybe 2006, 2007, um, I guess they just saw, you know, they were proud of what he did, but, you know, just saw him going there and maybe he'd have some work in a show locally in Japan or something. And then when his, start, his work started to get out more, you know, around the world and when things started to take shape and when they started to hear about things, they are very, very proud of what he's achieved. Um, he, his mommy's dad and his sister as well are so super proud of him and so are the institution staff. And I don't think they fully understand even they don't fully understand his success and, you know, the fact that he was in Freeze in New York, the fact mm. he had this massive thing in the Venice Biennale. Mm. Because they won't have travelled there to see it either, then for them, you know, they might read about it and if their English isn't that good, there's never really anything in Japanese written mm. about, you know, these particular shows. So they go off photos and that sort of thing. So they often get sent photos. I always send them photos and things from from things that I do. So they're so very proud of him, but I don't think they fully understand how much people love his artwork when they see it. And, you know, I don't think they fully, you know, I don't think they fully have quite got their head around the fact that he's having this solo show in New York either. They're just like... But but, but with his success comes a a commercial art market success. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. you're selling his works. Mm -hmm. How does that, where does that money go? Because... I wouldn't assume that he would be aware of what money was mm-hmm. or care about money. Mm-hmm. Does that go back to the studios and his family? And mm-hmm. what is that sort of, because these, they're becoming quite expensive now and that's yeah. quite a lot of money. Yeah. What, what sort of lifestyle do they have there? Is that kind of changing their life there and helping him mm-hmm. further? I mean, their lifestyle doesn't really change. I mean, the money, the money is going back to his studio and then he gets a portion of that. So because the studio pay for all the materials and all that sort of thing, right. there's an element of that where they recoup some of their costs and also the, the high costs of putting the kiln on mm. to fire his artwork. But then he does get a, a, you know, a high percentage of that. Well, the money goes to his family because for Sawada, you know, he doesn't understand the concept of money. Um, or anything like that so the money goes to his family so I'm pretty sure you know he'll get treats he'll get different things you know if he wanted something maybe he wants a new computer game I'm pretty sure he'll get a a lot of Super Mario's (laughs) Um, so yeah so the money is split between um, I get some and then the studio and the artist um, gets some which is pretty much the same with any kind of situation so absolutely and I've seen a few pictures of him at work um mm-hmm. and obviously he works completely in silence and very mm-hmm. kind of slowly and meticulously mm-hmm. but but he looks really content and I thought that's such a great thing is to mm-hmm. to his family to have found that place for him to study and mm-hmm. to to work as well he, he looks like he's really sort of happy and enjoying himself and surely I that think, is mm-hmm. like the key thing any family mm-hmm. would want for their child is for them oh, to yeah. be sort of fulfilling their potential and reaching that potential and I really feel like he's you know way surpassed that and Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. nice to see that he looks really sort of happy somehow he and I think he loves it and the fact that he goes there for four hours non-stop and you know almost doesn't want to take doesn't want to take a break to have a drink or eat something like Mm. he'll just fully continue until they say to him you know it's it's time to go home now and then he puts everything away I mean the dedication there and the fact that he's done it for so many years 
there was a short time where he didn't go for nine months um, because he wasn't very well. And this was a few years ago now. And then as soon as he was better, he was straight back in that studio. Mm. You know, as soon as he was allowed to go back, he was there, back in the studio, back working again. It's almost like he was desperate to get back to do it. That's an authentic creative self, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And he's, he's obviously so dedicated to it and you know, creates one every four to five days and then moves on to right. the next one. Um, I think it must be so satisfying because it looks so kind of meditative mm-hmm. and like, I don't know, yeah. calm. And, mm-hmm. and he's in the zone. Just, yeah, and you get lost in that world. It must be really mm-hmm. enjoyable. That's just in one of these videos, I saw an incredible sight of him photographing or capturing the finished works with, they called it his memory camera. So he sits there and he holds up as if he's holding like a camera in his hand and he goes around really slowly and it's, there's nothing in his hand, but he's, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. he's like miming that there is mm-hmm. and takes this mm-hmm. photograph for mm-hmm. his memory of the finished piece. But have you seen him do that? And what is that? Uh, like? I didn't see him do that when I was there, but I actually know quite a few artists, um, learn disabled artists that do that actually and they have like it's it's like a fake camera so it's like they're capturing it for their memory with their camera and I've seen that happen quite often actually in different studios that I visited so I wouldn't say that's unique to Sawada but it's 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 something that obviously puts it into the memory and kind of stores it somewhere and that's not taught. And that's that's their own process. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's a kind of slightly universal thing I've definitely seen other people do that yeah wow yeah I, f- I see. I, I like that, that thought. I feel like I need to oh, be doing that more often God. as well. But like we one need, for the memory yeah. bank. Put the actual iPhone down and yes. actually just like do a memory camera. Yeah, yeah. It makes me feel a bit emotional because it's also that kind of pride, maybe, of like that moment, mm-hmm. or it's something special, yeah. isn't it, that you yeah. want to yeah. remember? I mean, yeah. what a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, love that. I mean, what I a detailed do. Detailed mind he's got. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I do think he has a lot of pride in his work. I mean, you can see. I mean, when you see the ones with the spikes, the way that they're so meticulously placed like so exact in a straight line like he's not like haphazardly throwing them on he obviously takes a lot of pride that everything is on exactly how he wants it to be put on and I guess that's one of his autistic traits that everything has to be almost like perfect Mm. when he does it but you know there's obviously a lot of pride and a lot of care and a lot of attention to detail gone into that Mm. um, artwork so how is the show going to work then? Because oh, it opens very soon. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not able to travel anywhere, being in the United I'm Kingdom. I'm so sad. I really want to. So I'm really are sad. You doing it all over, <laughs> are you doing it over Zoom or how is that all going to... Because you've got, yeah, so you've got 30 film? ceramics and you have the paperwork in the show. Mm-hmm. What, well, what, is there a title there. for the show as well? Has he got no, a title? No, it's just, it's just called Sunichi Sawada. Right, okay. Shinchi, as Shinchi. they like to call him. Shinchi. Which is Shinchi Shinchi probably how you do pronounce it, but I always say Sunichi because... Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think I said Shinichi. Shinichi. I think Shinichi. Yeah. Shinichi. 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 Um, so how will you how will you install it? Well, that's obviously all got to be left up to um, Venus over Manhattan. Oh, okay, so right. They've got all the works now. The paper cars arrived this week because they came a little bit later. And then they're installing it on two um, big tables within the middle of the rooms for people to be able to walk around and see them oh, from all the that. different sides of them, um, which is really important for for me in particular, that you can see them from all the different angles. And there will be a video walkthrough, obviously, because lots of people won't be able to get there. Um, So that's one of the things that we talked about with them. And at the moment, they're always doing video walkthroughs, um, like a a live one and then one that's like a computerised one as well. And then I'm really passionate about things being accessible. So um, I'm I'm having the um, 
exhibition text is done in, in American Sign Language and in British Sign Language to go onto their website so that deaf audiences can start to learn a bit more about this artist, which is really important for me Fantastic. as well. Is this the same works that were in his two German shows? That No. They... No? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's still in Berlin, in, a, in closed down, collecting still dust right it. now, which is so, really and he's, sad. He's an institution. So institution, we're talking about MoMA, which is the wish list, mm -hmm. but there are other institutions that mm -hmm. are acquiring his work, right? Um, yeah, there are some institutions, but they're mainly um, outsider-related things. So like right. I said, Lausanne's got them, um, the House Saint-Pierre in Paris has got them, um, there's lots of independent collectors. There's the ABCD collection in Paris. The Demand collection has got them. So there's lots of independent collections, museums, and then individual um, collectors and, and lots of contemporary artists by him as well. But he needs to be in more um, contemporary art museum collections. Public institutions. Definitely. Yeah, public institutions say, yeah. like yeah. the Tate and MoMA. Yes, yes. Well, that's what there. that's what you're going to do, Jen. That's what we're that all going is, to do. Yes, we all need to. Hopefully, some of them are listening happen. now. Those curators, and <laughs> yes. the people. Maybe there's even people listening who could actually like help financially support a donation mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could also work. Mm -hmm. but, I've seen that happen with work in MoMA that's been yes. bought by someone very passionate about it, and then they've donated it. Um, like Judith Scott's work was donated to mm. MoMA, which was amazing. What's Judith Scott's work like? Judith Scott makes wrapped sculptures. So she went to Creative Growth, uh, an art studio in America, and uh, makes finds things around the studio. I talked about her in the last talk. Uh, finds things around the studio and wraps them in different materials and had this really wonderful process of wrapping and tying and creating these massive things with maybe like a part of a chair inside it and <laughs> part of a fan. And there's one of her works that's currently on display uh, in MoMA in a room full of just contemporary artworks, which is Brilliant. incredible. Brilliant. And another artist from Creative Growth, uh, William Scott, mm -hmm. he's about to have a solo at Studio Voltaire he in is. London. He and is. Uh, Matthew from White Columns, who we love, mm -hmm. he has organised that alongside Studio Voltaire, and that's incredibly exciting. Do you know a bit about William Scott's work? Well, I'm going to the talk that's on next week that they're Same. doing, which is yeah. amazing. Signed up for that. <laughs> But yeah, Matthew Higgs has been quite um, instrumental in kind of pushing um, William's work out there as well. And I'm sure he's had a solo show at, at White Columns in New York. Mm -hmm. But he creates these it really, I love looking at his work because it, it's joyful. It makes me smile of these characters, uh, many black figures, many black characters, many famous people feature in his work. I'm pretty sure he did Diana Russ. Um, so he has these incredible drawings and things and then what I also love about him is they do this uh, annual fundraiser every year this catwalk show and he quite often walks down the catwalk in this um, mask of the guy from Star Wars um, can't think what Darth Vader yes no <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which I also particularly enjoy oh, um, I love that yeah so that's so that's really exciting actually the Studio Voltaire are kind yeah, of yeah but that's an that institutional show. space that are mm -hmm, bringing mm -hmm. artists in mm -hmm. that are you know seen as normally marginalised and bringing them into mm -hmm. the mainstream and bringing them as being part of the conversation so that's and uh, well Studio Voltaire did a show of Nana Kalu from Action Space which is a London based studio last year and they hired a space in Mayfair and basically gave her free reign to build this incredible sculpture, 
within this space uh, under Studio Voltaire's banner. And, and Nena, again, is like a, a, a non-verbal artist attending a studio in London that wraps things. So she built this massive installation and wrapped loads of pieces and had bits of tape dripping off them and paper dripping off them. And and Studio Voltaire just fully back to having this, <laughs> just do what you want in this space kind I of thing. I love that. <laughs> they, also, they also did a show with, um, with John Sheehy. Mm-hmm, he's an outsider yeah. painter yeah. And artist and they did an yeah. amazing installation of his yeah which and he's not. london based as well yeah he's london yeah yeah, yeah. He's linked wow. somewhere. yeah. Mm-hmm. well you've been yeah. on before and we've asked you these questions before which <laughs> are the question we ask everyone which is your art heist and your favorite color but do you think that has changed since we last did the interview <laughs> at all your art heist have you come across any incredible works recently or is there a is there a um, shinchi work that you might yes Abel, oh. what is your favourite shinchi yes work? I, s- I sold the one that I no. wanted which is devastating what does um, it look like what did it look like does it look like it it was um, I've only ever had one of them and it's one of the ones that people are very whenever they contact me about him they they all kind of want this one particular one I think he's very famous for this work it has a very wide head on the top like of it butterfly like a butterfly wings like a rugby a rugby ball oh, head yes. Um, and it has these little weird almost like dinosaur t-rex hands coming out the front of it and it's covered in spikes and it has these massive big eyes um and it went to this a wonderful uh collection it's gone to a lovely collection nonetheless uh in switzerland but well that's good because you know where it is so we can i know where it is so i can do an art very effective (laughs) art house we're we're there for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, there's also two sitting in Berlin at the moment that are very similar to that um, because he made, when he makes work, sometimes they have a very similar look to them. So there's two in Berlin and one has a slightly wonky to one side head. So we could just go to Berlin to the, you know, closed institution and go and raid that while there's do you, nobody Do you there. title them or do you, how do you, how do you differentiate? No. Do you number them? or I, I number them just so I know what's going on, but they're obviously untitled. But for me, it's like untitled and then that's number five and that's number six. How many just are purely there now? that I know. How many untitled are there? I, I have no idea how many they've got. And the thing is, when they're, like I said, when they're made, because they can only put these, the, the kiln on so many times, there's so many that haven't been fired wow. that are just sat um, within this little ceramics hut, which is a real shame, actually. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, if we get more out there, then they'll have more money to kind of to fire it more and then they'll be more available and hopefully more institutions can kind of buy into them and stuff. So, And actually I did see that he um, was part of an exhibition at the Prime Minister's office in Tokyo in Japan. So he, And he, he actually attended the opening as well. There's pictures of him like doing a peace symbol like for, <laughs> in, in photographs. Like yes, I've his, seen him do the peace symbol in the videos. Yeah. Yeah. Next to his sculptures and they, and they mm-hmm. placed his sculptures outdoors on these mm-hmm. white plinths. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it's kind of, that, that must have been a moment where he had kind of, he got to see recognition, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know how he interprets that, mm-hmm. but, but he must have at least felt some sense of occasion, I guess. Yeah, it is very rare for him to travel to things, but his work is shown quite often in Japan um, in lots of different spaces. He's famous in Japan, is he? He's famous in Japan, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if we're talking like top level famous, but he's known. He's known. He's quite well known, um, I'd say. But potentially, again, still within the outsider art. He, his, his work features in lots of outsider art shows. So his work's right. about to feature in another exhibition in Tokyo. Um, so, yeah, he rarely travels to them. But I, I love that about Japanese. When I went to visit lots of the people there, whenever I had my photos with the artist, always the peace sign. I enjoy that. 
Well, I, I, I can't wait for everyone to discover Shinchi Sawada's work because I think he is a total visionary mm-hmm. and for people to learn more about you, Jen, because you are a visionary mm-hmm. and a nurturing uh, legend, really. And uh, I think more people should and will um, discover you. And okay. everyone get down to or check out Venus Over Manhattan online uh, from February 20th to March 20th. It's Shinchi Sawada's first USA solo show called Shinshi Sawada and uh, thank you very much for coming on Jen yeah and you can visit uh, Venus's Instagram which is V underscore over underscore M so it's Venus uh, and they are on Instagram and also you can see Jen's amazing gallery Jennifer Lauren gallery also on Instagram and we will be linking to Jen oh you didn't give us your favorite color we have asked (laughs) you before but people are going to be like you didn't get the color what's like what's the color well I might change it last time I said black which I feel is a bit of a cop-out so I'm gonna say navy blue Oh, it's quite close to black. It's quite close. It is quite close to black. <laughs> Just a I slight mean, shift. Like I said what, last time, though, I'm very, pa- I'm very, I'm very pale. So anything dark is good, good for me. <laughs> and you collect black and white art. You and I like, only have black and white art. Yes, that's streamlining. <laughs> that's very good rule for yourself. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, so you can visit at J underscore L Gallery, Jennifer Lauren Gallery, and you can learn more about the other artists that mm-hmm. Jen also champions and promotes and mm-hmm. uh, helps educate us all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, super grateful for you being here. We love you. And yep. um, Stick around, back. Jen, and then we'll we'll have a little <laughs> catch-up after. But, and uh, thank yeah, you so and also, much. And also, for... we should do this again, hopefully, at some point. We can I hope we can, artist. yeah. We can become a regular feature on Talk Art. But yes. thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, Jen. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com